We are in the middle of our series, or not quite in the middle, on the front end of this series, Gospel Pathway. Uh, and you put a subtitle to that, it's Learning to Walk in Newness of Life. And when it comes to the gospel, we want to understand the gospel. And oftentimes there's an assumption that we understand the gospel uh, when we maybe don't really understand the gospel. So the foundation is we have to understand what the gospel is. But more than just understanding it, we want to know how to apply it, how to live out the gospel, how to actually walk in the newness of life that Scripture tells us should be a part of our life as followers of Jesus. And we started this series out uh, in week one saying you've got to get that first button right. If you don't get that first button right, you're, you're in the wrong trajectory and you're going to notice some problems later on. And that first button is that God is the prize. The best part of the good news of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins, and it's not uh, heaven. The best part of the good news is that we get reconciled back to our maker, a holy God, and we get to enjoy him forever. And then last week in week two, we talked about sin, and everybody had a great time. I just want to thank you for all your emails. Uh, We had a good time together talking about sin, but we learned that sin was not just, um, or it's a lot more than just doing bad things. That underneath lying or cheating or stealing or coveting or greed or whatever it may be, um, we have a heart problem. We treasure the wrong things. We don't treasure God as we should or as he deserves to be treasured. Um, So today, where we want to go is, well, how's Jesus the answer to that? Like, if that's our problem, how's Jesus the solution? How does he answer that? And you might think if our problem is that we don't treasure God as we should or as he deserves, then the solution would be, well, then start treasuring God more. We're here to tell you, no, the solution, the answer is Jesus. Well, how exactly is Jesus the answer? And one critique people make about Christians is that y'all think Jesus is the answer to everything, right? You get a splinter, Jesus. Get that splinter out in Jesus' name, right? You're overweight, Jesus. Right? You got a headache? Jesus. You got cancer? Jesus. Like, there's just this critique of Christians that we don't get the complexity of real life problems and all that goes into those things. We oversimplify it, but I think it's the opposite. If you don't see the need for Jesus in all your problems, you're not seeing the complexity and depth of your issues. Listen, so if you have a splinter, get some tweezers, okay? But why are there thorns and thistles when we garden? And if you have a headache, take some Advil. But what's stressing you out so much that's causing your headache? And why does that bother you? Or if you have cancer, praise God for the common grace of medicine and doctors and go get treatment. But why does cancer exist? Right? And if you're overweight, change your eating habits. Exercise some more. But why do you keep turning to food for comfort? And why do you struggle telling yourself no? When you say that you don't want it, there's a deeper issue behind all these things. And listen, the consequence of sin, when I say the consequence of sin, let's go back to the original sin, Genesis 3 that we looked at last week. The consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion that they thought they could find an upgraded life apart from God rather than in God. The consequence of that sin was separation from God. We were in a relationship with God as human beings, and then sin happened, and we were separated from a holy God. And whether you realize it or not, we feel the effects of sin all the time. 
You see it in your own life. You see it in your own heart, behavior, emotives. You turn on the news and you see it every day. Sin creeps into every crack and crevice of your life and our society. We feel the effects of sin because we were not meant to be separated from a holy God. Like we were made to be in relationship, made to be connected with our maker. We weren't meant like this. And not only us, Paul tells us that all creation groans. This world is broken and dysfunctional, waiting to be made new again. You see it in sickness and in viruses and death. And you try to explain that to a kid and you try to tell them, like, well, death is natural. No, it's normal. And we're used to it. That doesn't mean it's natural. Like something's wrong with us. It's a sign. Like we break down. We got a problem. And the corruption of sin goes even into our own hearts, our own motives, our own thoughts. Here's something that Jesus said in Mark 7. I told you we'd get to good news, but let's, let's get a little bit more bad news before we get there. This is Mark 7. He says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going, to, going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person or what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So he says that. Then they go into the house and all his disciples are like, what did you mean by that? He says to them, then are you without understanding? It's like, you don't get it either. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. So you get a little anatomy lesson. Uh, and then he's, thus he declared all foods clean, unless you're lactose intolerant. You may push back on that one. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Like, where did that come from? Your heart? You got a problem with your heart? That's where it comes from. And the heart of the problem, or the heart of our problem, is the problem with our heart. We don't love God as we should. We treasure other things. The question is, how exactly is Jesus the answer to that? How does he fix that? Because all of it is a consequence of sin. Or you can put it this way. All of it is the effects of being separated from God. And we weren't designed for that. Because if you take like a a goldfish out of his tank and put him on the desk and you just watch his gills try to fight for air and flop up and down, you'd be like, what's what's wrong with the goldfish? Because he wasn't meant to live outside the water. And you look at a human being and you take that human being and you separate him from their maker, the holy God. And you're like, oh, why is he coveting and why is he jealous and why is he self-centered? Why does he get sick and why does his liver stop working and why does he break down? Why does he die? Oh, he wasn't meant to be separated from a holy God. I mean, you see the effects of sin. We've just become so used to it. The question is, how exactly does Jesus fix that? How is he the solution? Because even if you go back to the scene of the crime, in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve rebelled, Jesus at that time was also the proposed solution, or the promised solution would be a better way to put it. See, when, when Adam and Eve rebelled and then God came and started to issue judgments to, to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam, he said to the serpent, kind of in a, not kind of, a prophetic saying at the time of Genesis, Genesis 3, that the offspring of Eve is going to come 
and you to the serpent are going to bruise his heel and he's going to bruise your head. You're like, what does that mean? What God is saying in that moment that it kind of wrecked everything and broke in this relationship, he's saying, let me tell you how this is going to get fixed. Eve is going to have a descendant. Someday, somebody's coming from Eve, and you're going to strike his heel. Like, you're going to wound him, the cross, and he's going to destroy you, the cross. Now, here's how it gets said in Hebrews chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. That through death, so the reason he took on flesh and blood was to die. So through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He might crush his head. All right, so it's fulfilled in Jesus. But how does the coming of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, and his dying fix our mess? That's what we want to get to. How, how does that solve all our problem? How is he the answer? And I want to answer this question in two parts. Part one, if the consequence of sin is the separation from God, how does Jesus answer that? And two, if the heart of sin is not treasuring God as he deserves, how does Jesus address that? So, so two parts. If the consequence of sin is separation from God, how does Jesus address that? And if the heart of sin is not treasuring God as we should, how is Jesus the answer for that? So first, let's look at the consequences of sin. And we're going to uh, talk about some really profound uh, truths today. And, and there's uh, time is limiting for us to unpack all of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of passages we won't go to um, that shed light on Jesus Christ, pretty much all of them. Um, but we're going to go to a few to help us highlight what is it that Jesus did in our, our behalf that is the answer to our problem. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Last week we shared one verse from this passage, verse 23, to help us understand our problem. Today we're going to look at some passages around verse 23 to help us understand the solution. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans, or here we go. Ready? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law, the sacrificial system, this was the picture of the righteousness of God. In his holy standards and rules, you would see God's moral standard. You would see his his holiness. In the sacrificial system, you would see he doesn't tolerate sin. Like this was a picture of the righteousness of God. And he's saying the picture of the righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. In other words, we got another picture of the righteousness of God that's not the law. And in, in fact, the law has been pointing to this the whole time. So now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now we're going to come back to this. He's saying this, this righteousness of God is coming through faith, not, not works of the law. And it's through faith is what we're going to look at more next week. Okay, if we receive this through faith, we need to better understand faith. And we'll tackle that next week. Then verse 23, you guys are familiar with this. We looked at it last week. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem. That's our problem. 
behind every sin struggle that expresses itself in different ways, ultimately we fail to glorify God as we should. We fail to treasure God as we should. We treasure other things and chase after it. We don't worship God as we should. This is the sin. He says, you can boil down to this. We've all sinned because we all fail to glorify God as we should. So what's the solution? Verse 24, and are justified. We're justified. Now, justified is a legal term. Like if you went to court and you were accused of a crime and a judge justified you in that trial, They'd say, hey, you were accused of doing wrong, but not only did you not do wrong, you were in the right. So there's a little bit more than just you're innocent or you're not guilty, it's you're innocent. So not just not guilty, innocent. So in a theological concept, being justified means a pardoning of sin and a bestowal of righteousness. So more than just not guilty, also you're innocent, or in this case, you're righteous. And you go back to verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So in our justification, we get pardoned from our sin, but we also get the righteousness of God through faith in him. And we'll talk about how, what faith means next week, but we get declared righteous. So part of our justification is getting the righteousness of God. So even though we've sinned against God, we don't worship him as we should, we don't glorify him as he deserves, we're justified. We're pardoned of that sin, and we're declared righteous with the righteousness of God. How? How does that work? Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. Now, grace is the giving of a good thing you don't deserve. Like when you get treated better than you deserve, that's grace. Right? That's grace. And you would think grace and gift are kind of self-explanatory, but he puts them together like grace would imply a gift, but he's really emphasizing that you don't deserve this gift. The reason you're getting this gift is because of grace. Because you, you could have done some things to uh, encourage a gift, even though you, that person wouldn't have to give it to you. You could say, like, listen, you've had a great week. Um, you've worked hard. I'm really impressed by you. Therefore... I'm going to give you this gift. But that's not what he says. He's saying this gift is grace. As in, you haven't had a great week. I'm not impressed by you at all. You don't deserve this. And yet, I'm still giving it to you. Why? Grace. We get this gift because of grace. So this justification by God, the judge who we've sinned against, we don't worship as we should, we don't glorify as he deserves, is a gift by grace even though none of us deserve it. You might be like, well, how does that work? Because it it could seem like it's an abandonment of justice. Like, are you just going to ignore our guilt? Is it just kind of like, don't don't worry about it, forget about it, no big deal, I forgive you. Because that's sometimes how we treat it. Like, just, I forgive you, no big deal, let's forget it and move on. But that seems like an abandonment of justice. Because why not do that back in the garden? Why not do that in Genesis 3? Hey, you ate some fruit you shouldn't have ate. Grace. I forgive you. No worries. Like, why didn't he do it then? Well, why didn't he extend that at that time? Why not at that point just be like, Adam and Eve, I get it. There's a lot of trees. Okay? You could have easily got confused. It's no big deal. Because it's a big deal. 
to sin against the holy God. To think you could find satisfaction in something outside of God, in place of God. And God is just. Like, he's going to deal with sin. He ignores sin. He won't tolerate sin. He's just, but he's also the justifier. The, the one who's going to make things right. So he's the one that's going to have a standard and say, that's not right. But he's also going to be the one who makes things right. But the question is, how? And how is his justification of us, guilty people, justified? How is it legal? Or how is it right? If you're going to justify guilty people, that doesn't seem like that's right. How is his justification of us, if we're guilty, justified? Look at verse 24 again. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the, what? Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this justification is possible because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it's important to understand what redemption is to really get what he's talking about here. If you found yourself in debt that you could not pay, you might lose your property, right? The bank would take it back, or whoever you bought it from would take it back. They would have a right to it. Now, you, ha- you would have the opportunity to redeem it, uh, to buy it back for a price. Or in some situations, it led to somebody's slavery. Like, I owed this person money. I could not pay them, so now I'm working for them. And I will work to them until I get it all paid off. And if I can't ever pay it off, I'm in debt to you and I'm your property. I'm your slave. And I got myself into this mess. And if I can't pay my debt, that's where I'm at. But there's something in the Bible called a kinsman redeemer. A relative that if they had the financial means could come and redeem me. You see this in the book of Ruth. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. And you could come and basically... A redemption was a payment for a ransom. So when he's using this language to talk about our salvation, what he's saying is we belong to God. You belong to God. He made you. You're his. But you got enslaved to sin. But God made a payment for your redemption. He bought you back. He redeemed you. Now you're like, well, what was the payment? It says through the redemption that is In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If this is received by faith, faith's a big deal. We're going to talk about that next week. But the payment for our redemption is Christ Jesus. That's who he put forward on our behalf to purchase us back. The payment was Christ. And not just Christ Jesus. It's talking about his blood. It's the death of Christ Jesus. Because in the garden, what was the consequence of rebellion and sin? Death. But it wasn't just physical death. That's just a a, a consequence of sin. It was spiritual death, a separation from God. And Jesus took upon that punishment and his death on the cross. And it says that he put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood, by his death. And his death was a propitiation. A propitiation is an offering that satisfies or turns away wrath or it settles it. You ever have a conflict? Somebody brings, brings an offering to that and it settles it. It's like it's over. It's done. It's settled. It's satisfied. Saying Jesus' death was propitiation. It was an offering that settled it or that satisfied wrath. You're like, well, who's wrath? 
And he could have the kind of this cartoon theology of thinking, well, God's the good guy, which is true. And Satan's the bad guy, which is true. And we're sinners. And Satan doesn't like us. And he's going to punish us. But we didn't sin against Satan. We sinned against God. We violated God's standards. We don't worship God as we should. We don't glorify God as he deserves. It's God's wrath. It's God's wrath. But on the cross, by the grace of God, Jesus died and his blood satisfied the wrath of God that existed because of our sin and it justified us, pardoned our sin and given us the righteousness of God and redeemed us back to God. Amen? There was this purchase that that happened that gave us a righteousness that, that reconciled us back to God. And that's the goal. Right? Not forgiveness. God. God's the goal. And we get reconciled back to God. He redeems us. He buys us back. That's why uh, one page over for me in Romans 5, when it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So sin separates us from God, put us at odds with the holy God, but justification through Jesus Christ, the pardoning of our sin, the redemption, the propitiation, gives us peace with God. Or a passage we pointed out before, this is in 1 Peter 3.18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did he suffer? That he might bring us to God. Back to God. God's the prize. Reconcile back to God. And if you're going to be presented to God, it's like you can't be presented to God looking like that, all in your sin. We've got to, we've got to clothe you in righteousness. We've got to pardon you. We've got to justify you. We've got to give you the righteousness of God. And that's what's accomplished. The consequences of sin is the separation from God. But Jesus reconciles us back to God. He undoes or fixes what went wrong in Genesis 3. That's why I love how Paul puts it at the end of Romans 5, 18 and 19. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Talking about what happened in Genesis 3. So one act of righteousness, the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. He fixes it. Jesus is the answer. So if the consequence of sin is separation from a holy God, how is Jesus the answer? Well, he justifies sinners. He's a propitiation, that, a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, redeems you back, justifies you, pardoning your sin and giving you the righteousness of God so that you can be reconciled with him. And you might be like, okay, I get it. Like, I've been in church long enough. I'm a sinner. Jesus is a savior. He died on the cross for my sins. But listen to me. If the heart of sin is not treasuring God as he deserves, how does Jesus address that? How does Jesus address that? And this is so important. It's so important, I think so often people miss this. Too often people have a view of salvation that stops at forgiveness. I'm a sinner. Jesus is my Savior. Thank God for that. And just stops. But guys, there's so much more than that. There's so much more than that. Listen, the salvation through Jesus Christ is not just forgiveness. It's newness. It's transformation. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Right? You're a new creation. Or Ephesians 2, and it talks about you're being dead in your trespasses and sins, but made alive in Jesus Christ. So with Christ, you go from death to life. 
Not just guilty to forgiven. You go from death to life. Or in John chapter 3 when Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Like you need new spiritual life. That's what you need. Guys, that was the plan of salvation all along. The plan of salvation or the promise of salvation was always way more than just forgiveness. Way more than just forgiveness. It was about addressing the heart of the problem, which is the problem of our heart. That we don't love God as we should. We don't treasure God as we should. That we prefer other things than God. That leads us to all kinds of messes and sin. In fact, you see this promise get expressed in Ezekiel 36. This is God talking about what he's going to do. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. All those things that you put before God, that you treasure more than God. And I will give you a new, what? Heart. And a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I, that I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out your calloused, sinful, stone heart that loves the wrong things. And I'm going to put inside you a heart of flesh, a heart that loves the right things, a heart that loves God the right way. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. The plan of salvation, he's talking about spirit-empowered transformation. Not just forgiveness, spirit-empowered transformation. I'm going to do heart surgery on you. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to give you a heart that loves the right things, that love God the way you should. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. How am I going to do this? I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I'm going to begin to transform you from the inside out. I'm going to change you. Like this is the salvation that we're talking about. We see uh, an example of this. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, it says this. Do not, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, but, you were washed. Remember that same language in Ezekiel 3? I'm going to wash, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to wash you. Here he's saying, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we already talked about justification, this idea of being pardoned from sin and the bestowal of righteousness. But Paul drops a new word here, sanctified, which is also part of our salvation, which just means to be made holy. And it's often paired um, with this idea of washing. Just like washing is the process of making your body clean, you need to go take a bath, right? You need to wash. You're dirty, you need to wash. Sanctification is the ongoing process of developing holiness in the life of a believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's this process of being conformed, being changed from the inside out. Now, to be faithful to our text, sanctified is in the past tense. Like, not an ongoing process. It's like, it happened. You have been sanctified. Um, because there's, there's positional sanctification and there's practical sanctification. Here, it's in the past tense. 
often when scripture talks about sanctification, it talks about it this ongoing process. But here it's in the past tense. But what he's saying is you have been sanctified. You have been made holy. When you were justified, pardoned for your sin, and given the righteousness of God, you have a holy standing before God right now. You have been sanctified. Positional holiness. And now there's practical holiness. Like you are going to be transformed over time by the Holy Spirit in your life. Because I know this sounds weird, especially if you're not a Christian. But what the Bible teaches is that when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. Dwells you, seals you, mine. I bought you, I redeem you, you belong to me. Now I'm going to go to work. Now I'm going to begin to transform you from the inside out. Now I'm going to convict you when you sin. Now I'm going to comfort you when you're hurting. Now I'm going to lead you. Now I'm going to produce fruit in you. That's when you get the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. He's saying that, that's the Spirit working in you. That's part of your transformation. That's your growth. That's your development. And this passage, it's an illustration of that. Like they're a testimony to that work. It says in there, after this list of all these sinful acts, it says, and such were some of you. That was you like five years ago. Right? Remember when I came and preached the gospel? Y'all were living that way. Now you're not. You used to, but now you're not. You used to be that liar. You used to be that adulterer. You used to be that idol worshiper. You used to be that prostitute. You used to be whatever. But now you're not. Why? Because you were justified and you were sanctified and you were washed and you were given the Spirit and the Spirit began to transform you from the inside out and to change you, begin to conform you to the image of Christ. Here's, here's another passage in case you doubt and you doubt me. All right. Titus 3, a beautiful section of scripture. Titus 3, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. Again, we were once. Not anymore. Not anymore. But we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was our past. But something happened. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what he's saying here is like God, our Savior, appeared. That was at the beginning of the section. At the bottom, it's like, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So is it God, our Savior? Or is it Jesus Christ, our Savior? Like, what's he he getting at? And what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is God who came to save us. Emmanuel, God with us. God put on flesh. God came to our rescue. He came to save us. And why did he come? Because of his loving kindness. Or we saw it in Romans 3, because of grace. You got this gift Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is a gift. This gift comes from his loving kindness. Now that word for loving kindness is where we get our word philanthropy. And it's, it's a word that's only used here in the New Testament. It means love of humanity. And God is the greatest philanthropist. Right? For God so loved the world. 
He's the greatest philanthropist because he attacks or addresses our greatest need. And our greatest need is himself. We're separated from a holy God. And because of our separation from a holy God, we see it in every crack and crevice of our life and society. Sickness and death and sin and envy and jealousy and strife everywhere. It's because we're separated from God. So what does this great philanthropist who loves humans do? He gives them back himself. He comes to us. He sends his son. He addresses our greatest need by sending his son. Or here it says he saved us. Not because of works you've done. Because of his mercy, he sends his son. But notice here, it's more. More than John 3, 16, where he, so he gave his son, right? Here, we get a little deeper look into what that means. So he sent his son to do what? To die? To forgive? To pardon? To redeem? To justify? Yes, and amen. And to sanctify. And to give us his spirit, right? Because it comes through Jesus Christ. It says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So regeneration, it talks about it's the new birth of the believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. So when, Je- when Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, he says, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus asks a great question. Well, how does that happen? Right? Through Jesus. He's the life giver. Comes through Jesus, whom poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or 1 Peter 1 we looked at before, that God causes us to be born again to a living hope. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not just forgiveness. It's not just pardoning of sin. It's not just bestowal of righteousness. It's not just redemption. It's not just reconciliation back to God. It's being made new. It's sanctification. It's transformation. And listen, guys, if we don't understand the extent of Jesus' salvation, we will look to Jesus for forgiveness, but we will look to salvation elsewhere. I want you to get what I'm saying. If you don't get the extent of the salvation that Jesus offers, as a good church-going Christian, you will look to Jesus for forgiveness, but you will look elsewhere for salvation. I know I'm a sinner. I admit it. Jesus is my Savior, and I need to be forgiven. I shouldn't have done it. I did it. I need to be forgiven. But if I'm going to be complete, if I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to be delivered, I need this. I need this to make me well. I need this to make me better. I'm a greedy person. I'll admit it. I'm a greedy person, and I need forgiven for that. I need need your forgiveness for that. But but if I'm going to be generous, I need some more money. Oh, if I had more money, I'd be super generous. I got a lust problem. I'll admit that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have looked at that. And and I admit, I need forgiven for that. I do. But but if I'm going to overcome this problem, I need a spouse. If you just get me a spouse, that would, that would help. And I got a drinking problem. I admit I shouldn't do it. I need forgiven for that. I, I know it's a sin. Would you forgive me for that? But if I'm going to overcome this drinking problem, I need a different job with better hours that's less stressful. Right? We're going to look to Jesus for forgiveness, but we're going to look for salvation elsewhere. Church, nothing else and no one else can save you 
Like at a heart level, take out a heart of stone that loves the wrong things and put in a heart of flesh that loves God as you should love God, that treasures God most of all, that loves God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the kind of transformation we need. Salvation through Jesus is not just forgiveness. It's newness. It's a new status. Right? You're a child of God. It's a new standing. You're... You have the righteousness of God. It's a new creation with a new heart, a new passion. It's so much more than just forgiveness. Listen, Jesus is the answer to our problems because he addresses the heart of the problem. He pardons sin. He redeems. He justifies. He sanctifies. He makes us new. And that's why we believe Jesus is the hope of the world. He's the hope of the world. Because listen to me, church. You don't just need your marriage problems fixed. And you don't just need help kicking that bad habit. And you don't just need forgiven for what you've done. You need to be made new. Jesus does that. And our world doesn't just need some new policies or new laws or new leadership. Our world needs made new. Jesus does that. He will. He will make all things new. Jesus is the answer. And you don't need a new job. You don't need a new spouse. And you don't need new money. You need Jesus. And get that, I'll leave you with this. But if the essence of our sin is a failure to treasure God as we should, it is in Jesus we see most clearly the beauty of God. Look back at 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We showed you this passage last week, and we're going to come back to it again. There's something specific I want to point out. It says, that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the light of the gospel, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's like, you want to get a picture of God? Look at the gospel. Look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get a a beautiful, clear picture of God in that. Which means Jesus didn't come just to forgive us of our sins. He didn't come just to reconcile us back to God. He didn't come just to make us new. He also came to show us just how lovely God is. It's like on the cross, God shouts at us, Hey, you who worship other things more than me, have you ever seen anything more loving than this? Have you ever seen anything more merciful than this? Have you ever seen grace like this? Have you ever seen compassion like this? You who treasure other things more than me. Have you ever seen a God who loves like this, that he would come and die for the people that turn away from him? Have you ever seen anything more worthy of your worship than this? It's in the glory of Christ is the image of God, and there's nothing more amazing than the picture we get of God in the glory of Christ. On the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see how awesome God is. A God who loves the people who rebel against him. 
who pardons the people that rebel against him, who shows mercy to the people that rebel against him, who gives grace to the people that rebel against him, who reconciles the people who rebel against him back to himself. Guys, Jesus is the answer. Because he'll pardon your sin. He'll give you the spirit to make you new. And he shows you just how lovely God is. And next week, we'll look at what exactly it means to believe in him. Let's pray.